actually shared uh, this week's article with me. Yeah, you guys don't know this, but Emma and I just kind of text each other weird news stories all day long. Actually, more of like, what is someone doing now? It's a great time. (laughs) So Emma sent me this story about how researchers want to use ultrasounds to treat Alzheimer's disease. And honestly, I have to be honest, guys. My initial reaction was, what? (laughs) Most people think of ultrasounds in terms of doctors using them for pregnant women to monitor, like, babies in the womb and their growth and making sure they're turned the right way. Exactly. Or maybe finding out the sex of the baby. Actually, I've had a very different experience with ultrasounds (laughs) myself. Uh, One time, doctors had to use an ultrasound on my neck because it got all swollen up and uh, they thought I had the mumps. (laughs) What? Yeah, what what happened was I had a cold, and then after I started getting better, my lymph nodes were still, like, really swollen, and the one of the lymph nodes on, I believe it was the right side of my face, just got super swollen, um, and it was this big, like, protrusion on my neck, and it was, like, pressing on my trachea and making it, like, hurt really bad and a little difficult to breathe, so you can imagine, I was pretty freaked out. Oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Yeah, it was kind of a scary time. And um, I remember I told the graduate student that worked in in the lab that I was working in as an undergrad that I was going to ride my bike to the hospital. And Mercedes was her name. She just said to me, Rachel, you cannot ride your bike. You're going to fall over. You're lopsided. (laughs) (laughs) So she drove me and... uh, that was very nice of her. Did it did it go away after time? Like now, I'm curious. Like you gotta. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, gosh, this was five or six years ago, but I mean, I think it just took a couple weeks, and then it eventually went away. But while it was going on, it was really scary. It, the thing that freaked me out the most was like it's right against my windpipe, and it was like pushing into it and making it wow. like feel weird to Ooh. breathe and I was which made me panicky which made it worse <laughs> in fact one night I even got so freaked out about how it was pushing my throat that I even um I went to the ER because I like felt like I couldn't breathe and they just told me to take Tylenol <laughs> what a waste of time <laughs> yeah you know life could be worse but definitely some rough times <laughs> I mean, that is a fascinating story. That's a good one for two truths and a lie. Oh, yeah. That's a good one, Emma. I had never thought of using it in that context. I have another one that I use for two truths and a lie. Um, Never have I ever been in the back of a cop car because I actually have. Oh, yes. You did tell me this one, and that was also terrifying. (laughs) To clarify, it was not for anything I did. It was just this one time when I almost got kidnapped. Fun times. I did not. I wrote down license plate number. All was good. (laughs) She's so nonchalant. Oh, I almost got kidnapped. Don't accept rides from strangers, kids. Okay? What you want to do is run across the street and write down their, well, look both ways. Then run across (laughs) the street. Then write down their license plate number. That's how you do it. (laughs) So anyways, um, can't wait to hear how ultrasounds relate to Alzheimer's disease and not my neck.
since the story focuses on Alzheimer's disease, we are going to do a quick recap of the biology of the disease. But if you want a more um, thorough review of Alzheimer's disease and the biology behind it, we do actually have a YouTube video uh, where we talk about Alzheimer's disease and herpes virus. So definitely uh, go check that out if you want to learn more. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, and it causes problems with memory, thinking, behavior. But during the course of the disease, clumps of protein called plaques and tangles start to build up in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. And these plaques and tangles basically prevent the signals in your brain from being transmitted correctly, quickly, and efficiently. So that's why everything's kind of slowed down and not working as well. But interestingly, these plaques and tangles can be used by doctors to monitor the progression of the disease. And researchers are working on developing treatment strategies to help your brain break these plaques down and dispose of these large clumps. Because if you can get rid of these clumps, then your brain can function basically normally. Genetically, we know that Alzheimer's disease is very complex. And they, we kind of mentioned this um, a couple episodes back when we talked about George Church and the Genetics Dating app. But, you know, we know that there are multiple different genes that contribute to um, developing Alzheimer's disease. Um, there's a number of genes that we know. We know some of like the uh, most common risk factors or strongest risk factors, but there are probably lots of genes that contribute that we just don't know about yet. So this can make it really hard to study and really difficult to treat. Another one of the biggest barriers to treating Alzheimer's disease and really any other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Huntington's, or Alexander disease is delivering the treatment to the brain. And you may wonder why, and that reason is the blood-brain barrier, or the BBB. <laughs> Love it, the BBB. The blood-brain barrier, or the BBB as we like to call it here, um, is a physical barrier that separates your circulatory system from your central nervous system. So that means it separates your blood from your brain and spinal cord. Why is it important to have that separation, and does this exist in any other places in the body? The most important reason we have the blood-brain barrier is to prevent pathogens or infectious agents like viruses and bacteria from getting into our brains, because it's really important that we have a functioning brain, right? <laughs> no, nah, we can we cannot function with our brain without our brain. <laughs> no, sometimes I wonder if my brain is functioning right. Um, but no, it is um, it is kind of interesting how we don't do this for other tissues that, you know, out of all the things in our body, like uh, how your heart is so critical to keep blood circulating through your body. I mean, obviously, in that case, you couldn't separate the heart from blood, I guess. But even, um, I don't know, it's just interesting that um, the brain is alone in this. And, you know, there are other barriers in your body that are important. Like, for instance, in the gut, you have an, a barrier of epithelial cells that separates all the waste and bacteria from the rest of your body. However, the blood-brain barrier is kind of unique in that, um, you know, there's really not a lot that gets past it that's not intended. And how it kind of makes the decision of, of what is allowed to cross that barrier is mostly size. Things have to be really small to cross the blood-brain barrier. There are a couple other factors that go into whether or not a molecule can cross the blood-brain barrier. So charge, for instance, is important, as well as whether that molecule is fat-soluble or not. However, in general, 
that size threshold is probably the most important factor concerning whether or not a molecule will be able to cross the blood-brain barrier. So if the blood-brain barrier is kind of like a fence surrounding the brain, is it equally strong in all areas of the brain, or are there some areas where it might be easier to say like hop the fence? Actually, this is kind of pretty fascinating to me that the answer is no. The blood-brain barrier is not actually consistent across the brain, and there are particular areas of the brain where the barrier is purposefully designed weaker so that your brain can maintain quick communication with the rest of your body. So for instance, the area postrema, which is also called the vomiting center of the brain, <laughs> is weak on purpose because this way the blood can communicate really quickly with the brain and trigger a vomiting response if someone is exposed to a toxin. Like you would want to get that out of your body as quickly as possible. So getting back to ultrasounds, the typical ultrasound that we all think of uses high-frequency sound waves to create images. It's really cool, and the machine actually uses echoes from these sound waves to form the images, which is called a sonogram. The type of ultrasound that they use in this study is a little bit different from the, the one we normally think of. So for this study, they used a focus, low-intensity ultrasound. This type of ultrasound is actually performed inside an MRI machine or a magnetic resonance imaging machine so that researchers are able to focus the waves to a really specific region of the brain. So of course, this is the part of the technique that makes the ultrasound focused. It's also low intensity, of course, so the waves aren't as strong or intense as what you would use when you're doing an ultrasound on a pregnant woman, for instance. So the first step of this process is to inject patients with microbubbles, which was kind of crazy to me when I read about it since I, you know, I donate a lot of blood uh, and I know that one of the things you're not wanting is to get any kind of air bubble um, if they're giving you a saline solution. <laughs> um, so, you know, this just kind of made me feel weird to read about, but I guess since the microbubbles are small, that that that's okay to be passing through your heart and not <laughs> give you a heart attack, obviously. That is a little creepy. But yes, so they inject these microbubbles into you. Then, in the second step, they expose you to those low-intensity ultrasound waves. And this actually causes the bubbles to oscillate or vibrate. The vibration of these bubbles actually causes your blood vessels to experience a pressure. And this pressure causes the connections between your cells, which are called tight junctions, to open up, which can allow bigger molecules or drugs to pass through those openings. So these tight junctions, so it's kind of just a fancy word for some how some cells contact each other. It's a very tight and sturdy connection that actually looks kind of like a zipper. This kind of cell connection is used in epithelial tissue, like in your skin, and also in the lining of your gut or stomach. Exactly. So by pulling apart these uh, connections between cells, or you can imagine like opening up that zipper a little bit, you can allow bigger molecules to pass from the blood into the brain. Now, safety is obviously a concern here. I mean, when you think about it, you're putting pressure on blood vessels in the brain. So this could weaken them and cause unintentional bleeding in the brain. I mean, you think about brain hemorrhage or stroke, that is not something you want happening in your brain. Also, by opening up the blood-brain barrier, 
you could be risking exposure to pathogens and, you know, things that you're not planning to have cross that barrier, but that may be circulating in the blood at that time. So also for, for treatment purposes, you know, doctors might be giving multiple doses of whatever medicine they're trying to get across the, or treatment they're trying to get across the blood brain barrier. So how safe is this technique to be using time and again? Yeah, I mean, that's really important if you're talking about the brain, because those blood vessels are crucial. But unlike CRISPR, and specifically the CRISPR babies, researchers tested this out in rodents before humans to make sure that this technique was both safe and effective. And they even tested it out on sheep to make sure it wouldn't be harmful to do this procedure on a larger brain. Yeah, so props to them. You said that you read a article citing kind of a study where they did this. What did they do in this specific study? Yeah, there are actually a lot of groups working with this technique right now, so I had to kind of narrow my focus on just one study. So I chose to focus on an article from a research group in Toronto that had performed a phase one clinical trial using focused ultrasound on Alzheimer's disease patients. Who all was involved in this study? So it was a phase one clinical trial, like I said, and, you know, for phase one trials, typically the main concern there is to establish safety of the technique. So it's typically done on a pretty small cohort. And this particular cohort included five patients. Three of them were men, two of them were women. The average age of the patients was 66 years old. um, Because when you think of Alzheimer's disease, we're not very good at detecting it early on. So of course, patients would be you know, about 65 is maybe when you would um, see symptoms um, occurring and think about treatments such as this one. So these patients had mild Alzheimer's disease based on measures of their cognitive abilities and the amount of plaque in their brains, which they were able to measure by a PET scan. Unfortunately, they had to exclude one of the patients because they got sick during the study. Yeah, if they're exposed to a virus, opening it up would probably cause the virus to get to their brain and kill them. So, good call. Exactly. So, they did end up taking this one patient out of the study, taking their overall numbers from five to four, which is a little disappointing. But, you know, of course, your whole goal here is safety. Um, So, you have to consider that. And safety is the main purpose of this study. So they wanted to test, one, their, the ability of this technique to open up the blood-brain barrier in patients, and two, whether or not that doing that is safe. Why would opening up the blood-brain barrier help? Yeah, so opening the blood-brain barrier can help in a couple different ways. One of them we kind of hinted at already is that by opening up this barrier, you're allowing... Um, treatments to pass from the blood into the brain and that's a really big thing with Alzheimer's disease treatments so I mean one of the most popular uh, methods right now to use is these are these immunotherapies which involve using antibodies to recognize those plaques that build up in the brain and antibodies are large molecules so it can be challenging to get them to cross that blood-brain barrier A second way researchers think this technique might help is to clear out some of that trash in your brain. And what I mean by trash is these plaques that are building up in the brain and they're just junk (laughs) in the way. So your brain actually has this lymphatic system and you've 
most likely heard of the lymphatic system. It actually courses all throughout your body, right alongside your blood vessels. It's used to clean things out, collect excess um, liquid. And in the brain, we know that the lymphatic system can clear out some of those bad proteins. And there is actually evidence for this from studies done in mice. So when researchers treated mice, which were our model for Alzheimer's disease and do um, generate those plaques in their brains, when they treated those mice with focused ultrasound alone and no other form of treatment or drug, the amount of plaques decreased and the cognitive abilities improved just simply from opening up these blood vessels and, we think, allowing the, this trash to be cleared. That's really impressive that they were able to do that just by opening up the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, so unfortunately in humans, they did not see the same thing. They did not see this decrease in plaques. Um, and that could be for a couple reasons. I mean, maybe the blood-brain barrier is just more sophisticated um, in humans or the lymphatic system is a little different um, so that opening it up in this way would not have as, as strong of an impact. However, the good news is researchers did find that the procedure was safe, so there was no bleeding in the brain, which is something we talked about them obviously being concerned about, and it was effective in opening up the blood-brain barrier. This opening was temporary, so the blood-brain barrier closed back up within 24 hours. So that in itself is something to celebrate, that they were effective in helping to open up that blood-brain barrier. And I think it could be used maybe alongside with other treatments because we were seeing that opening the barrier by itself is not decreasing the plaques. So, I mean, essentially this technique's really appropriate to help open up the blood-brain barrier to deliver compounds or drugs but not remove the plaques. Correct. They also saw no change in cognitive abilities of the patients, which at first seems disappointing, but then when you think about it, I mean, Alzheimer's disease is a progressive disease, and your cognitive abilities are just getting worse and worse, so it's almost like no change could be an improvement. So since they've done a phase one trial, has there been anything to come out of this, like maybe a phase two? Yes, so as of 2018, they have started phase 2A clinical trials, and I can't remember what 2A means, but, you know, we discussed phase 2 of clinical trials in our previous episode, and we know that the purpose of that is to monitor not only safety in a larger group, but, you know, really focusing on how effective this method is uh, in a larger group of patients. So for them, they will be using a cohort of 30 individuals. And again, I want to reiterate, we talked about in clinical trials how important that measure of success is and what's your primary outcome uh, or primary goal for this treatment. So for this group, their primary goal is to measure how effective this treatment is to open the blood-brain barrier, and they're not really banking on whether it's going to have an effect on decreasing plaques or improving cognitive ability because that's not what they saw um, with their first group but um, just being able to open the blood-brain barrier you can imagine would you know open up lots of possibilities yeah that makes sense to try and like take it one step at a time and not put the cart before the horse because if you're trying to expect these plaques to go down and you can't even open the blood-brain barrier nothing's really going to happen 
And there aren't really a lot of ethical implications for this story because we always like to kind of have a section focused on ethics. But if it's proven to be safe and effective, it could be really useful for treating many diseases of the brain. And a lot of these diseases, I mean, I'm sure you all know people with Alzheimer's or dementia or Parkinson's, Huntington's, they are pretty horrible diseases that leave your loved ones kind of shells of themselves. So really anything to help would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really exciting new direction, and I'm happy they're starting to think about blood-brain barrier because we've seen so many failures recently in the the potential treatments for Alzheimer's disease, particularly a failure to translate from these rodent models to the human. And maybe a part of that is kind of the blood-brain barrier in humans is just too good at its job. Well, in many Alzheimer's disease treatments that have entered clinical trials, they've failed pretty horribly, and maybe that's a part of the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, it definitely could be the BBB, although another option is that some researchers believe that these plaques are not really promoting the disease as much as they are, like a side effect of your body trying to protect itself from these abnormal proteins by clumping them all together in one place so they don't hurt other processes in the cells, between the cells, and kind of muck everything up. And they believe that compared to these big plaques, actually the smaller bits of protein are kind of stickier and almost more destructive because these sticky little pieces can, you know, interact with other things inside and outside of your cell and and stop them from doing the jobs that they need to do. So it's almost like by clumping these, all these sticky little pieces together, (laughs) you can form this one more inert clump that, of course, by being there, it's taking up space and maybe not being the best, but at least instead of like a hundred little tiny pieces is just this one thing to worry about oh because they think okay if these little pieces get in they could almost be worse than like one big clump exactly so currently there are over 100 active or recruiting clinical trials involving this technique for a varying number of disorders from alzheimer's disease to depression to breast cancer and i think it'll definitely be exciting to see where this technique goes in terms of treating alzheimer's disease and other disorders (laughs) 